if you had a Bible, it would be helpful to, to have it open in front of you. Um, I'm going to read from, from Psalm uh, chapter 131 this morning, Psalm 131. Before we do that, just, let's just uh, bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that this word is, is living and active. As a two-edged sword, Father, able to even split our soul and our spirit, Father. And Lord, I just ask that you will give us tender hearts this morning, soft hearts this morning, as we hear what you have to say to us, Father. Lord, I pray that, that the words that I speak will be true to your word and that they will only expose, Father, what's in your words. And Father, I just ask for your help now. Help me and help us all, Father, to listen to what you have to say to us. And Lord, I ask that your word will transform our lives and make us more like your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm just going to read Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. I wonder if I had a scale of one to ten this morning and I were to ask you to describe the state of your soul on that scale, where one is absolute perfect calm, mill pond in the waters, reflection a deep calm with not even a ripple on the surface? Or is it more like 10? Is it more like the dial is off the charts and your soul is screaming at you, the Rolling Stones classic, I can't get no satisfaction? And I'm not going to sing it for you. You'll be glad to know. <laughs> but where on that scale are you this morning? Is it closer to 1 or is it closer to 10 when you really contemplate what's going on in the depths of your being? And if you do have a number in mind, if that number is close to 1 and the calmer end of the scale, how much of that would you put down to your circumstances this morning? Where you're at in life? Or another way of putting that question maybe is, do you find that the number on that scale changes from day to day, depending on what happens in your life, what comes along? Do you find that as upset comes, that that storm blows up in your soul? Or even in the good times, maybe, anxiety can strike and disturb the surface and cause ripples on the surface and start the waves to rise because you don't want to lose something that you've got and acquired. And it's probably pointless asking any of us this morning where on that scale we would like to be. 
regardless of the day or the time of the week. I think the Rolling Stones tapped into one of the greatest problems that mankind faces, and that's our inability to control the unease and the discontent that's deep within our souls, irrespective of the circumstances. They actually wrote that song in 1965, right at the height of their fame. Success had brought wealth, fame, parties, girls, and yet no satisfaction could be found. Their souls were anything but calm and quiet. So how could David possibly pray the words we just read in Psalm 131 as an honest evaluation before God of his soul? And is it possible for us to find that sort of deep contentment no matter what life throws at us, no matter what the circumstances are? That's the question I want us to consider this morning. This psalm only takes 30 seconds to read, but it contains timeless wisdom. And it contains the secret to contentment if we let God's work, God's word speak to us and work in our hearts. So we're just going to go through it one verse at a time uh, this morning. So verse 1, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. This verse, I think, exposes the self-willed ambition that's deep in each one of our hearts as being one of the chief agitators of our soul, self-willed ambition. David's reflecting on his contentment in this psalm, and he's doing it from the vantage point now of having a calm and quiet soul, so he's now able to see things clearly. He's able to see what was actually agitating his soul beforehand, what was causing all of that clamor and turmoil. And there are three related characteristics in this first verse that he identifies, not so much because they're there, but because they're no longer there, they're absent. He's been able to put them out of his soul. And those three things are his heart is no longer proud or boastful or self-seeking. And because his heart isn't proud any longer, his eyes aren't actually looking for things he can acquire to fulfill those lofty ambitions in his heart. And because his heart isn't preoccupied, his mind is no longer preoccupied with trying to scheme up ways of boosting his self-esteem. What's at the root of much, if not all, of our discontent that troubles our souls? I think it's something along the lines of we deserve better than the lot we currently have in life. A constant dissatisfaction with what we've got. Self-willed ambition arises from our belief that there's a deficiency in some area of our life, whether that's our health, wealth, power, success in a career, sophistication in life, romantic love, family. It could be any number of things. And it doesn't matter who you are or at what stage of life you're in. Our prevailing culture tells us to identify our most vivid and wildest dreams and pursue them relentlessly until we get fulfillment. And when you get those, you'll have satisfaction. Don't let anything get in your way. Just go for it. And you'll be satisfied once you get it. And our lives are reinforced, I think, with a constant stream of media portraying success. 
whether that's celebrities on TV or Netflix or whether it's self-publicized stuff on Instagram or Facebook, all of that sucks us into thinking that everyone else is doing much better at this than we are and able to pursue and fulfill their dreams. And the result, unfortunately, for many of us is that it results in spiraling dissatisfaction. And in some extreme cases, it can lead to despair and the utter disintegration of a person. But Psalm 131 points us back to the possibility of a real and lasting and deep contentment. You might be thinking it was all right for David who wrote this psalm. He didn't face the struggles that I face. After all, he was the greatest king in Israel's history. But I just want you to think for a moment about David's story. He was anointed to be king of Israel when he was nothing. He was a shepherd boy out in the fields. He was called in by Jesse to meet the prophet Samuel. And at that point, he was anointed to be king of Israel. It took another 15 years from actually to ascend to the throne of Israel. And David, in between times, didn't presume that the kingdom was his already. And he didn't then plot and scheme to overthrow Saul. And even though on at least two occasions, Saul was right there for the taking, David could easily have have killed him in that cave without anybody batting an eyelid, but he didn't. Instead, he trusted in God's promise to him, and he waited. And in between times, in in that 15-year period, Saul did his best to make David's life an absolute misery, even to the point of multiple times trying to kill him, either personally or by putting him into the front lines of battles. And it got so bad that eventually David had to flee Jerusalem. He had to leave everything behind his best friend and his wife included. And instead of ruling a nation, David then found himself in the wilderness leading a band of renegades and misfits who were effectively just basically renting themselves out as mercenaries to whoever would pay the highest price. How do you respond when life takes an unexpected turn? And when David did finally become king, did his problems all end there? No, far from it. The status, the power, and everything that goes with it didn't bring David a quiet and fulfilled life. That's not where he found his satisfaction in life. Dan spoke last week of, of, uh, of Psalm 51 about the extramarital affair to Bathsheba. The child from that affair ended up becoming seriously ill and died. And the consequences of that one sin from David's life rumbled on right through the rest of his life, down through the remainder of his life. There were multiple rebellions, multiple betrayals from the people closest to him, even his beloved son, Absalom. And that's not to mention all of the other pressures that go with being a king, leading a nation through famine and through war. But in spite of everything that life throws at him, sometimes through his own feelings, David is able to experience deep contentment in the depths of his soul. Why? When David put God first, he basically knew his place in the world, and he was able to stick to it. He didn't get ideas above his station, and he didn't let his heart desire things not meant for him, and so he didn't chase after 
or take on things that he wasn't meant to have. How many of us needlessly inflict pain because we have too high a view of ourselves? God gives each of us talents. To some, it's one talent. To others, it's five talents. To others, it's ten talents. And even if you've only got one or two talents, it's better to spend your time investing in those rather than wasting your time comparing yourself to the person that has five or ten and trying to fill the gap that you have between them and you. I might dream of being the fastest sprinter on earth, but it's absolutely pointless me even trying to pursue that goal. No matter how hard I train, no matter how hard I punish my body, there is no way that this thing is ever going to run as fast as Usain Bolt. Never, ever, ever. There might be good reasons to train, but it's not going to become an all-consuming part of who I am because it's beyond me. And yet, how many times do we look at things that are beyond us and say, and strive to have those things? We need, with God's help, to humbly discover and accept the skills and circumstances He's given each one of us. So many people today in our society have boiling, tumultuous souls because they're pursuing self-willed ambitions that are just too far beyond their grasp and their capability. And the same thing can even happen to us as Christians. Paul provides a stark warning of this. He's speaking specifically about money in, in 1 Timothy 6, but I think the principle applies to anything in life, to any self-willed ambition that we might have. And he says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. How did David find this great gain that Paul is able to speak of? If we move to verse 2, verse 2 it says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. This psalm, if you look at the structure of it, is actually shaped like an arrowhead. So on the two flights of the arrowhead, we have God at the beginning and God at the end. And in the middle at the point is this phrase, weaned child. And it happens twice, so we don't miss the point. What's the psalmist trying to communicate to us with a picture of a weaned child? And there's two questions I think might help us with that. One is to think about, well, what is weaning? What's this process of weaning? And who is involved in that process? So what is weaning? And for the parents in the room, Winning probably brings a whole messy picture to your mind of a messy process and frustration as well. You know what it's like when you're trying to get that spoon into that mouth that's clamped tightly shut and there's no way in the world that that spoon is going in that baby's mouth. It's not going to open for anything. No matter how many times that airplane swoops down, it's not going to happen. And then there's the neck reflex. If that isn't bad enough, you get there, you think you're about to hit it, and bang. It's gone. The head snaps around and all of that mashed up carrots all over the cheek. Weaning is a necessary process. 
All children must sooner or later learn to live without mum's milk. It's necessary. They have to become accustomed to living without the very thing which it seems their life utterly depends on. And it might seem completely unfair to them. It might seem cruel to them that they're not getting their demands met, but they need to learn that no matter how loud they scream for the milk or how many times they refuse the solid food, there's no other option. And actually, ultimately, it's for their own good because the introduction of solid food opened up all sorts of freedoms, all sorts of tastes and sensations that were just unimaginable beforehand. And God's like that with us. Contentment has to be learned. We have to be weaned off something and weaned on to something else. And Paul wrote a letter to the Philippians, and he did this from prison, saying exactly the same thing. In Philippians 4 and verses 11 to 13, he says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, and I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Not only is it a learning process, but a weaned child never goes back uh, to mom's milk. It's actually, it's, it's a permanent transition. And actually the relationship changes between the mother and the child. And it changes forever because the child now is at a point where it's now content to be with his mother. Not because of what she provides, but more because of who she is. And we need to learn, unlearn our dependency on our own self-willed ambitions. And as Christians, we need to mature from just seeing God as someone who meets our needs to loving Him for who He actually is. And that process can be painful for us. And that brings us to who's involved in the process of weaning. And you think that's probably a blindingly obvious answer to that. There are two people involved in any weaning process. There's the mother and there's the child. There's God and there's David. There's God and you and me. Both have a part to play in the process. Who takes the initiative to wean the child? It's the parent. But in order for that weaning to be successful, the child must bring their will into alignment with the parent's will. At some point, that mouth has to open. And at some point, it has to receive the food. If you look at verse 2 again, David says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul. David cooperates with God in the process. He has to exercise his will in calming and quieting his soul. And if you want to become content and mature as a Christian, you need to surrender your will. And all of your ambitions need to be surrendered to God's will for your life. And that's not an easy thing for us to do. It's painful. It's uncomfortable. There's a struggle that has to be undergone in subduing the turbulence that's in our souls. And actually, it's impossible for us to do it in our own strength. That's Paul's point at the end of what I just read in Philippians 4. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We often 
misuse that in terms of, well, if, if God, God will give me whatever I want, he's going to give me the strength to get whatever I want. But the actual immediate context of that is Paul pursuing contentment in life. And that contentment is in abundance or need. Often I think we think that we can see the, the discontent with dissatisfaction with, with a lack of things, but it's equally difficult, if not more challenging, to actually deal contentedly with abundance in life and the responsibility that, that brings. We don't want to give up on our selfish ambitions and desire, and we need strength from outside ourselves to wean us off those things. And it's no use trying to find contentment by just modifying our expectations in life and trying to accept our limitations. For as long as our lives are governed by selfish ambition and desire, we will never be content. And ultimately, those ambitions and desires that we have, the self-will things that we have, are hoping in the wrong things. And the things that we hope in ultimately can't bear the weight of our expectations. They just aren't strong enough. Whether it's health, wealth, power, success in a career, sophistication, romantic love, family, even if you were to achieve perfection and success in all of those things, they won't be able to provide lasting satisfaction. Jim Carrey, the, the Hollywood actor, uh, once said in an interview about fame, he says this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. That's a person at the height of success who we look to as a celebrity who has everything, seemingly, and yet he says the answer can't be found in any of that. And his soul is still restless as a result. We need to be weaned off false hopes, and we need to learn to trust in something that can actually truly satisfy our desires and is strong enough to satisfy us and strong enough to bear the weight of our expectations. And we come to verse 3. David points to where he finds the strength to provide the calm and the quiet in his soul. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The psalm opens with David bearing his soul to the Lord. And it ends with him revealing the source of his hope. The one who loves David, the one who weans David off his self-willed ambitions. The very one who is the hope of David's soul, the Lord himself. He alone is strong enough to bear the weight of all of our deepest longings and hopes. And you might ask, how can I be so sure of that? Come with me to the Garden of Gethsemane. The greatest battle for calm and quiet in any human soul was fought in that garden. Jesus, on the eve of his crucifixion, was praying. And there's a storm of cosmic proportions raging in his soul. I don't think we can even imagine what was going on in Jesus' soul. The Son of God was facing the most terrifying prospect He's on the brink of taking on himself all of the sin for mankind, yours and mine included. And not only is he going to carry our sin, but he's going to bear on his own body and his own soul the wrath of the Father. 
And he's going to be utterly cut off from the Father and the love of the Father that he's known from eternity past. And he's going to do that for your sake and for my sake. The earth was cast into complete darkness when Jesus hung on the cross because the cosmos couldn't bear to look on at what was happening. And in Gethsemane, Jesus knows exactly what lies ahead of him. And his soul is anything but calm and peaceful. Mark comments in his gospel that Jesus was deeply distressed and troubled. And Jesus tells Peter and John who are with him in the garden, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And his whole body was affected by the turmoil that was going on and the deep anguish that was going on in his soul. His sweat became like great drops of blood, we're told. The stakes can't be any higher. Jesus is standing before a choice. Will he choose to save himself or will he choose to save millions and millions of people? And saving people from the wrath they fully deserve anyway. Jesus fought that battle in that garden and he overcame the tumult in his soul for you and for me. And he prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus brought his will into perfect alignment with his Father's will. Jesus calmed and quieted his soul. He learned to pray this psalm, Psalm 131, in the Garden of Gethsemane. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. David was able to find contentment for his soul by putting his hope in the God who had given him a promise. God promised to raise somebody up from David's line who would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And Jesus found contentment in the middle of the most terrifying circumstances. He was able to walk out of Gethsemane, a man condemned to die with a calm and quiet soul. It's remarkable when you read of Jesus' demeanor as he's put in front of a kangaroo court, an unfair trial, and facing the crucifixion itself, just how calm and peaceful and quiet he is. And he proceeded to the cross, and Jesus fulfilled the promise that God had made to David a thousand years beforehand. And in going to the cross, he fulfilled that promise forever. He established his kingdom forever, a kingdom that will never, ever be shaken or broken. I think some of the most beautiful and striking words in the Bible are found in Isaiah 53 and verse 11. It's speaking about the suffering servant, and it says this. This is speaking about Jesus on the cross. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear 
their iniquities. Jesus, in the middle of enduring unimaginable pain and anguish in his soul from the wrath of God, was able to look at us from the cross, and he was satisfied. He was content with the work that he was doing because he knew knew in that moment he could set us free from all the turmoil and all the turbulence that affects our restless souls and purchase rest for us, an everlasting and eternal rest. We have knowledge that David never had access to. We now live in the light of that cross and the resurrection, and we know and can see that God keeps his word. David only had a promise to go on. We can actually see the fulfillment of that promise. And he promises you and me a share in this everlasting kingdom on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross. We have a living hope, as we've just sung this morning, and it's in the person of Jesus Christ. He alone is strong enough to bear the weight of all of our expectations. He alone makes it possible for us to experience that deep and lasting contentment in our souls if we're prepared to surrender to him, if we're prepared to put down our ambitions, our self-willed ambitions, our misplaced ambitions, and submit to him and his perfect rule and reign in our lives. Jesus made this easy for us. Jesus did the difficult bit. It's us that make it difficult and more difficult than it needs to be. Irrespective of who you are this morning, irrespective of where you've come from, and irrespective of what you've done in your life, Jesus invites you to come. Come to me and you will find rest for your souls. Let's just take a moment in response and pray. I'm just going to read through the psalm again. And as I read through it, maybe there's things that you need to lay down before the Lord this morning. Maybe there's things that are, your heart is focused on, that your mind is preoccupied with, and you need to find rest this morning. Jesus invites you to come, drink deeply from me, and I will give you rest for your souls. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.